Welcome to the Focus Forward Business Podcast for SturdyMcKee.com. This is Sturdy, and in this episode, I'm talking with Bill Gallagher. For those who don't already know Bill, Bill is an entrepreneur and a certified Gazelles business coach who has a passion for working with leadership teams. He's currently working on a book that helps to debunk the myth that you have to do negative things, or as we Gen Xers would put it, sell out in order to grow your business 10 to 100x. We get to talk about his journey as an entrepreneur and lessons he has learned both personally and from working with hundreds of businesses around the world. We talk about the passion and vision or the fire that we all started with, and we explore capturing it, sharing it, tending it, and relighting it to keep that passion going for you and your business. I would like to thank Bill for his unequaled willingness to share and be truly vulnerable and genuine in that sharing. He gives us powerful, emotional, and genuine ideas and experiences to consider in this episode of the Focus Forward Business Podcast. Bill can be reached at humanistec.com. That's human, I-S-T-E-Q.com. The link will be provided in the description and over at sturdymckee.com as well. This is Sturdy McKee, and we are here with my uh, good friend, Bill Gallagher, who I've known through EO San Francisco for quite some time. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the passion and fire of in, in entrepreneurship. And uh, number one, just want to say thank you very, very much for being here, Bill. I appreciate you agreeing to do this. Thank you. It's fun to be with you. Love doing it. Thanks. So you've been doing this entrepreneur thing for uh, quite a while, and I wanted to ask you why and also how you, uh, how you got started. Right. So I think every entrepreneur has a story that begins somewhere in childhood. And for me, it's about 10 years old, uh, living on the North Shore of Oahu. And uh, I had two kind of jobs at that point, uh, or two things that I learned some entrepreneurship from. The first was um, the first was like the importance of the power, like cash is real, collection is real. So one of one of those jobs was a paper route, right? And the paper route, I they would drop newspapers at the house. You fold them, you stick them in your bag, which is strapped to the front of your bicycle. You ride around, you deliver the papers. That's all pretty straightforward, except you also have to collect. So I'd have to go around and collect from people. <laughs> and you're 10 and years then you old. saddle up, right? I'm 10 years old. I have to go. And people won't come to the door. And they tell me to come <laughs> back. And they're, they're shining me on for their paper subscription. And I, I mean, I don't think they meant to be cruel to a 10-year-old, except they were, because the people that I didn't get paid from were coming out of my pocket, right? It isn't like they gave me a credit. No, they gave me a certain number of newspapers. I had to turn in the difference of the cost of the collection and whatever. And if I didn't get collect from somebody, that, that came out of my pay. And so I certainly learned the importance of cash and collection and cash flow at that point and uh, like that. And the other thing that I learned, so the other job wasn't really a job in the sense, but I was a member of the Boy Scouts, right? Like many of us were in those days. And uh, uh, we sold tickets to the Jamboree as one of our fundraisers. And I have a pretty small community on the North Shore of Oahu. I don't know if you've been there, but it's far from Honolulu. And um, in the little communities, right? So if every, if all the little kids in that town are selling jamboree tickets, you quickly run out of yourself four or five. But I would easily win again and again the most tickets sold in my little group because what I did is I would put on my scouting top, right? 
and then some shorts, and I would go barefoot over to this major tourist destination, which was a few blocks from my house, the Polynesian Cultural Center, and busload after busload of uh, sunburned and white um, uh, tourists, <laughs> pale tourists from all over the world would descend on there on a regular basis, and I would stand there in my scouting uniform, shorts, and bare shirt, and, and, and uh, bare feet, and I would sell them tickets to the Jamboree, right? Almost none of those people were going to go, like maybe 1%. But I sold more tickets to those people because they wanted to support me. I'm like, well, it supports the thing. Look, give the ticket away, stick it up or remember, you know. So (laughs) I would just sell the tickets and I would win my stuff on a regular basis. And I learned from that the power of putting yourself out there and of creating a compelling reason for the person to buy, selling to them in something that is of interest to them, right? In this case, it's feeling good about doing something for someone else. Um, and so those are kind of the early things. And then, you know, along the way, I did a variety of jobs. I started a newspaper when I was in college because I couldn't find the schedule to fit in to take a journalism class. So I'm like, well, why don't I just I'll learn by doing? So I started this arts newspaper. Um, I, I worked on other groups along the way, I, you know, a lot through my career, I had this like newspaper that, um, that I started, uh, I put on shows, uh, music shows. I, I started a market research firm. I worked in telecom radio, uh, different aspects of software and hardware technology and services, um, and even jewelry. So just a huge range of things that all ha- kind of have some interesting common threads through them, uh, but always was me doing something, following some passion. Cool. Cool. And I, I love what you were talking about with the, the Jamboree tickets and all you're selling it to the Hollies who don't even live there and aren't going to go, but it's very much the emotional benefit versus yep. like their economic or functional or what have you. But it was that feeling good piece that was compelling enough. Yeah, I just thought there's a lot of people there. I'm going to go sell them something. And I didn't stop to think they don't need tickets. They're not going to go. (laughs) (laughs) They want to support things. This is a good way to support them. I'm going to go sell them some tickets. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So um, a few years ago, you started kind of a new journey, another uh, step in your entrepreneurial journey as a business coach. And that might seem on the surface for some people like a departure from your previous businesses. But my question for you is, is it really? And uh, how did you come to decide and start a coaching business? Well, so I haven't had a regular job in uh, like for a big company in, in probably 25 years. And I've had five businesses of my own and I've been a partner and executive in three others. And uh, along the way, I've learned a lot of things about myself. I've had some great successes. I raised a family. I, you know, did things like that. Uh, I've also had some dramatic (laughs) and painful failures. And I think from that, one of the things that I recognized in like at a high level is that I'm not such a great operator. I'm the launch person, the startup person, the turnaround person, I'm visionary, um, I'm creative, but I'm not an operator. In fact, I'm a terrible operator. And for a lot of years, I tried to be a better operator. But as I've gotten older, 
and I've started to recognize, oh yeah, I suck as an operator. I've only done well when I had good operations partners and uh, or people on the team, right? And um, and in fact, I don't really want to do that. And so at the you know, as I was approaching 50 and I thought about leaving and I, le- I left my last role, uh, my last CEO role, and I thought, what, you know, what am I going to do? It was pretty clear to me for a few years running up to this that I w- would love actually to advise and invest and so on. So that's what I've been doing now is uh, advising, investing, coaching um, like that. And um, And I started initially adjust with CEOs, I found that wasn't as effective um, or as consistent uh, a way to impact the companies as engaging the whole leadership team. So I've moved to that um, over some time. Okay, great, great. Um, so what, what's the latest thing you're working on? Well, the la- so the latest thing, I think there's this um, undiscovered myth uh, or even fear that we have. It's a it's an unrecognized fear, and it's a common myth, and that is that you'll have to sell your soul. You'll have to sell out. You'll have to compromise in some way, major way, give up something to 10x or 100x your business. And I think if you stop and think about it, we have fantasies of growth, and then we don't take bold, consistent action on those because we're like, well, if I if, if this company was 10 times or 100 times bigger... Um, I wouldn't like myself. I wouldn't like the company. I, you know, I wouldn't like who I'd become because already look at this growth that I've had. Maybe you've doubled the business or something like that, or maybe you launched it. Now it's uh, it's quite a bit from your first year, but you're like, wow, my, it's my life is complex. It's overwhelmed. I don't have much more capacity. I can't do any more, right? And so the notion of and I and I had this in a in a less clear way off and on for a lot of years. And my wife really had it in a big way, like, oh, I don't want to be 10, 100 times bigger because I, I would hate myself and the company that we'd create, right? I wouldn't like who we'd have to be to do that. So, and where, I think that's that all nonsense. Yeah, where does that come from? Uh, I, it's, it comes from uh, the comfort of the status quo, right? Um, the whole notion of uh, change and growth is is uh, confronting, um, and there's a fear of the unknown, the undiscovered places, um, and of and of being overwhelmed. So we sit in our current world with a certain amount of comfort. We say things like, "Oh yeah, I'm really busy right now," um, but it's truly a cop out kind of a thing that we say. And uh, and when we imagine 10 times, 100 times bigger business, we just imagine being 10 times or 100 times busier. But the thing that I remember right. is that I was 27 years old working for another company, and I had formed and led and grew a piece of business to over $500 million within this larger company. I was an entrepreneur mm-hmm. in this case, right? And so I'm 27 years old, and I'm on vacation. I'm severely hungover in Mexico. Um, and <laughs> I was that's the first time that's ever happened in Mexico, by the way. Right? <laughs> severely <laughs> hungover in Mexico. <laughs> My brain is hurting. I'm wondering, you know, you know, how much more of this evil stuff I can get out of my body. And and I, in that motion, I, I like had 
the thought that I have to pull it together because I have to deal with something. There's a there's an issue going along with uh, losses in a particular part of the business. I had to make a decision about something, and and I couldn't even think straight. And I thought to myself, what am I responsible for? Oh, I'm responsible for $1.67 million today and tomorrow and every day, no matter how I am, no matter. And I worked through thousands of people, but I didn't have a lot of direct authority of all the people that I worked for. So I had... Uh, you know, I had a huge responsibility, a huge business. I had created it, launched it, sold it, grown it. I had fleeting control of it. And uh, and I've looked back on that at different points in uh, growing other businesses. And it's occurred to me that whether you have a multi-billion dollar business, a several hundred million dollar business, or a couple million... The, there are different ways of working, but at the end of the day, you can only do so much, right? You you need a certain amount of sleep right. before you snap. Some of us need more or less or whatever. But the head of a multi-billion-dollar company, whether the founder, the CEO, or whatever, puts their pants on, goes to the bathroom, argues with their spouse, has trouble raising their children, just like the rest of us do, and. So it's not actually that different. There's something available. There's different ways of working at scale, and you don't have to lose yourself or the vision for the business. And just because you're serving more people or selling more product doesn't mean you've cheapened the the product or the service or your passion necessarily. Well, you could, and we do look around and we do Good, see... Okay. We do see CEOs and entrepreneurs who have sold out in some way. We do see people whose lives are destroyed through excess. They make for great stories and great movies of personal tragedy and greed and all kinds. But there's plenty of others that we don't notice, of people who have done a fine job and who've grown up and have preserved, who've created a company they're proud of and uh, a life they're proud of. And, and, and I meet them all the time. I mean, my average client is over... Um, $60 million in business. Um, I work with companies from just below $10 million to over $400 million. So I work with a big range of businesses. And uh, and the ones who are sitting at, say, $12 million are like, how am I ever going to get to 50 or 100 And it just seems insurmountable. But when I look over at that person running a $50 million business, a $250, a $400 million business, they're not profoundly different. And in fact, uh, some of the times when I see somebody trying to be a Superman and run a multi, uh, a business of several hundred million dollars and trying to carry all the weight of other, all the weight of that on their shoulders, they, they're failing, uh, fantastically. Just failing at scale, right? <laughs> right. Right. So here's the thing I think that's the secret to that, and that is, and it all lives in this, in the fire, the passion, the inspiration, that vision that you have. So all of us, some of us are are more, uh, think of ourselves as more inspirational leaders than others, but every last one of us leading a business at some point had some inspiration. And uh, the inspiration, the fire um, that we have lives in a particular vision. Whether you recognized it or wrote it all out is unclear, but that that lives in a particular vision that you have for the future. And sometimes it's very fleeting. The moment that you catch it, you're all lit up. 
and then and then it may fade or morph over time because you didn't fully capture it, record it, um, uh, memorialize it, right? So we have these moments of inspiration and vision in the early stages, either taking over a job or in founding a company. We have a vision for something. And the most successful ones are the ones who carefully sort of capture it and then it's okay to revise it over time, but but they know well enough to do that. A great example uh, is our common friend, Darius Mishazadeh. And Darius has been down the process of doing this a few times. And he knows our, you know, the scaling up framework and the, from, the more from the original Rockefeller habits. And when he started his latest company, he began with the things that I, that I really spent a lot of time working on with people in the beginning. That's what's the purpose? What are the values? What's the big, hairy, audacious goal, the long-term goal? And what are the brand promises? What are your customers, what can they expect from you? What are you actually good at? He captured that kind of thing in, in like three years, grew to over 800 uh, employees from, from nothing, right? That's a significant kind of thing. When I took over the last business I ran, I came into a business that I had no background and no interest. Nobody would have ever hired me in this except that I was married to the founder. So, in, <laughs> right? In so she, hired she hired me, right? And, and reluctantly. In 2002, we had three businesses between us. I had two technology companies. My wife had a jewelry business. They were all failing because it was right after the, the 2001 downturn and September 11 and all that. They were all failing. And, and I, you know, we had young kids. Our, our life was a mess. I felt trapped in my marriage and my life, everything about it. And I stopped and I sorted myself out and I pulled up and I said, oh, we should just focus. We should work together and we should focus on one thing. And my wife was like, I just went out of the jewelry business. I hate it. I've been doing it for 10 years or uh, I forget how many years it was at that point. But she'd been doing it for a while and she was, she was done with it. She wanted out of it. I said, you know what? Actually, I see something here. I, I suddenly got what it was that made jewelry special and important and significant. I was inspired by a way to run a business, a way to be a new kind of leader than I'd ever been before. And I saw something in it. So I had a vision. I was inspired by something. And to make it my own, I captured those things. So we were sort of new to the rock habits and Vern Harnish in those days. Uh, my partner, my business partner and wife had been through the, the original Birthing of Giants program had come back and shared the things with me, which I reluctantly embraced. Um, I fought her quite a bit on those things. But, but some of it I really recognized. And one of them was creating a vision, this notion. So embedded in it were values, uh, brand promises, and uh, uh, the purpose of the business, right? And I captured that piece of that. So that was the capturing of the ember, the inspiration. And then I shared it. So every single day, we put those things into what I call now a manifesto. I didn't call it at that point. You may have heard of brand manifestos. This is a company manifesto. And typically, uh, it includes purpose, values, BHAG, and brand promises in, in the most common things. So I put all those things into something that I now call a manifesto. And every day, we read it. And then in a variety of different ways, we engage that. And that's this this piece of sharing the fire, passing the torch, uh, taking our habits. So the habits in, expressed in the Rockefeller habits of the book um, and the habits of building a culture 
daily ways that we touch it. It's not enough to say, write these things down and stick them in um, company documents on your website, in your brochure. You've got to actually interact with them on a daily basis in order for purpose and values to come to life, in order for the brand promises to be fulfilled consistently for people on your team to be engaged in the BHAG, the big, hairy, audacious goal. So those are the first kind of pieces that I did is I, I you know, I took that over and I, I, I really had no business at all in that business except my relationship. But um, we started to grow the business, right? And, and we did well with it. The next thing, though, that you have to deal with is, so everything's going up, right? But, but businesses have setbacks. There are moments, there are things that eat away at that vision, that passion, inspiration, even if you're tending it by sharing and reading these things, then you'll have breakdowns. And the breakdown for me came just a couple of years later, and I'm chugging along, I'm trying to get my arms around a business and an industry I've got no knowledge or background in. I'm changing out members of the team, making the business my own, working towards the thing. And the bank comes to me and says, listen, uh, we need to get out of this line. We want to close your line of credit. And, you know, so please, please close it. We, of course, we were not in a position to do that at the time. And we just barely come out of the 2001 downturn. We weren't fully recovered from it. Our business was had gone down in half maybe at that point. And, uh, and I didn't fully have a plan yet for how to fulfill on that BHAG. I just had this direction and things that we could do. So uh, we were in no position to retire the line. So the banker says to me, he says, well, you could just sell the house. You could give us your house. <laughs> of course. And, you know, for him, it's like the most natural thing in the world. We'll just sign over your house. We're good. We'll, we'll be good. We'll go our separate way. And, like, shut the business down. Give us your house. And if you can't, refinance. Um, and I just saw, like, an assault on my family, my marriage, the whole thing. Suddenly, I sure. saw the business failing, the bank pulling the loan, our losing the house, and a divorce, and then being a weekend dad. And everything that mattered to me in my life was suddenly threatened. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the, the next piece is, how do you tend that fire over time? And, and I think the thing is, um, I think the key is authenticity. So the way that we tend the fire over time, at that moment, right, my fire is greatly diminished. I'm demoralized. I'm thinking about ways to survive the almost certain predictable uh, demise to my business and family, the failure of my new passion to be a new kind of leader. And, uh, and I am, can't tell anyone about it, right? I can't tell anyone about it. So that's where authenticity, I think, comes in. Uh, we uh, we think authenticity sounds good. It's total buzzword, and we're uh, we recognize there's some power in it. But I think we tend to confuse authenticity with sincerity. I'll just be really sincere about stuff, and that's authentic. And I don't think that is. Authenticity is being open and vulnerable, or the access to authentic leadership. And uh, and that that might mean that you have a good cry as a leader or you show your weaknesses, but that doesn't necessarily make you weaker unless that's all you leave people with. So I went to my team and I said, listen, um, the business, uh, the bank wants to shut down the business. They want to take my house. 
and I don't really have a good plan, right? This all sounds like terrible leadership. But here's the deal, <laughs> right? That sounds like terrible leadership. But here's the deal. I'm not going to give in. I'm going to fight them to the bitter end. So now there's stand and commitment in the face of almost certain predictable doom or failure, right? Now that starts to sound like some Braveheart shit. <laughs> so people who are willing to stand powerfully in the face of insurmountable odds create a huge amount. So now I open myself up. I share about something that I don't have a plan for with the team. So now I'm open. I'm super trustworthy in that moment. And I share with them this powerful stand that I'm going to fight. And in my words at that time were until the sheriffs come and lock the door and take away and, you know, and, and take away the keys or something like that. And, uh, and, and I specifically said that, like the sheriffs come and lock the door and so on. They, t they, they shut me down. People could hear the stand and I was serious. It wasn't a ploy. It was like, look. And so I said, okay, here's what I know. We have this, this, and this. Here's the situation. Here are the, here are the things. I don't know how to put all these things together, but if you would like to join me in this fight, uh, you know, I'd love to have you. And if you need to quit, fine, quit. I totally understand because um, you got to take care of your families and your houses and things like that. And every single person at that moment stayed through the struggle. They were all inspired and lit up by the thing. And they appreciated the honesty. The remarkable thing is, as a team, they came up with a solution that I couldn't see on my own. And up until that point, I'd always thought that as a leader, I just needed to be smarter and more articulate. And I, and I relied on being smart and articulate. And that was always pretty good until I walked into a room where somebody was smarter or better spoken, and then I was intimidated or, uh, or whatever. But it wasn't really enough. And I got to this place where, faced with like giving up and starting over, I decided instead to take it on. And I had to alter who I was as a leader. And I discovered in the process of that the power of authenticity. And the key that I've learned in working with other leaders is that the, the indication, so you've got a breakdown of some kind, right? You're not lit up. You're not inspired. You don't have full freedom. You don't have power. Uh, you're stopped in some area. So that's an area where there's a lack of authenticity. And the way that we uh, unlock things, the way that we turn it around is we look for what you're afraid of and what you're ashamed by. So anywhere that you have fear and shame, we want to dig in that area a little bit. What are you hiding? Where? What are you not public about? In that case, I was not public about with my team that the bank was trying to shut us down and that I didn't have a plan. So the the key is to then go public, and uh, but in a really you know in a powerful way, you might want to work with a coach or a buddy or something like this or a peer group like a forum or something like that. I prepared not only to share with them the challenge, the thing that that was so confronting for me that I was afraid of and ashamed about, but also my stand in the matter, my commitment to not give up. And then I empowered the team to work together. Now, we pulled out a huge thing. Not only did we settle with the bank, but we came roaring back and set records for profit, cash, and everything else the next year. It was extraordinary. The team rallied. We did all kinds of things we never imagined. We innovated. We pivoted, we redesigned aspects of the business. It was really cool.
No, I love it. Okay. And the whole idea too that you kind of brought up there is that rekindling of the flame and, and again, sharing it, spreading it with others in an authentic way. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Cool. So, I mean, you just shared some, some huge, you know, events and, and things, I guess, uh, what were your kind of biggest surprises along the way with your journey and how you got to where you are now? Well, so the, uh, the next big surprise um, came and I saw sort of two parts of it. So one, the, uh, the need to create new fire. So having the bank was one sort of level of things, but it wasn't the ultimate level. And I had two sort of bigger upsets in the next couple of years. And in those moments, you've got to actually create like a whole new fire, some completely new inspiration. It's not a matter of sort of dusting off the old, noticing what you're afraid of and creating some new passion, some new inspiration uh, or buffing off the old one, remembering the old one like that. There's moments where your the wind is completely knocked out, the fire is snuffed and you've had a major setback. For me, it started in 2005 when I got a call from the emergency room that my dad had just tried to kill himself. Um, I never dealt with a thing like that before. Now, looking back, I, I, I had been avoiding it. When I was a kid, my dad, so I mentioned at the outset that I you know, was on the North Shore of Hawaii and all that. My dad was this great character, and he was my best friend as a kid. He taught me how to surf. My dad was passably conversational in 17 languages. He was an entrepreneur and a professor of linguistics. He, we traveled the world. We did all kinds of things. He taught me how to surf. He, I mean, he's just a great, huge hero. Uh, but as I grew up and moved on and, and like that, and as my dad's life, my dad had a series of setbacks and he became an alcoholic. And, uh, and I guess he'd always been uh, bipolar. And, you know, he was just kind of this larger than life character to me as a kid. And I only learned what that term was later. But the combination of the alcohol and the bipolar um, condition grew and then uh, my dad's life started to take a downturn. Well, during this whole several year ramp up, and I, I don't know exactly kind of how long it was, but I just started avoiding my dad. This guy that was my hero, my friend and all that, I got busy with my own life. So when I got the call that my dad was in the ER and he tried to kill himself, he was being transferred to a psychiatric facility for something called a 5150 hold. I I knew in my heart I I could not avoid it anymore, right? That's sort of like, oh, dad's got problems again. I'm just, you know, uh, it sounds terrible to say, but that is kind of what I what I was doing uh, for a few years. So now I suddenly had to deal with it. And in that moment, I had to completely sort out something, and I didn't want to and hadn't wanted to deal with any of that stuff with my dad. So I had to create something new. And what I came up with was providing leadership for my family and taking care of dad. I'd been so confronted and so not wanting to see my dad anything less than extraordinary and then avoided him. Now I couldn't. And I needed some some passion, some fire around dealing with this whole thing. 
So that notion of providing leadership for the family did sustain me and then helped me to address the thing. Now, along the way, I, um, I learned all about addiction and bipolar condition and things like that. And, and there were lots of ups and downs with my dad in rehab and things like that. And they weren't all pretty. Like I remember in one case, summertime and we're by the pool and I don't know exactly what triggered it, but I came unglued and I started just shouting and almost screaming at my dad that he was a asshole and he fucked his life up and like that. Right. And, um, and that sounds terrible, except the next moment, like the thing he got was how much I cared and how much I loved him. And what cl- came clear in that real challenging time was how much we really loved each other, right? And so in spite of the difficulty, like that was a time for us actually to come together and appreciate and get complete with our lives and our relationship and like that. In in the spring of 2008, my dad gave up and he finally was successful in taking his own life. But you know, when he went, by the time we got to that three years later, I know that he passed knowing that I loved him. And I know as he passed that he knew that I knew he loved me. So, you know, it just was his way. And he wasn't a guy uh, who was going to live by anybody's rules. He lived in his own way with his own way of looking at it. And uh, and I could see it probably coming. And while I wish that it didn't have to be that way, there was love and appreciation. And, you know, and I carry his spirit with me all the time and the lessons from it. But in the middle of all of that, right, I had to still deal with the business and the family and all of that. And and then the next year, we had the 2008, or later that year, we had the full meltdown of the economy with 2008, and then the, the profound time. challenge to the business again, right? Oh, my God, now we're going to, right? And the business <laughs> went down more than 50% overnight and so on. And again, then, we applied some of the tools that we did to keep inspirational life, to remember what we're working towards and to, to, you know, to bring passionate, inspired leadership to the face of all that. And after the initial shock of that downturn, we produced several years of sustained real growth and significant uh, growth to the business, significant expansion and pivot in the business coming out of that as a result of the same kinds of things again and again. So the, the dealing with the setback, the questions that I've learned to ask and that I apply with CEOs on a regular basis now when something hits them is what, so what, now what? So the what question is what actually happened? So we want to get the real facts out. We want to fully confront them, not look away, not ignore them, not leave unopened mail and unanswered emails and things like that. But we want to fully embrace the whole situation, right? Right. And then the second thing is to get to the so what, like a shrug of acceptance. When you fully get the what, including all the facts and all your thoughts and feelings and opinions and your stories about whatever it represents, then you can get to a place where you can let go of it, 
right? You can accept it, embrace it. That's the so what in this case. You let go of the meaning of the prediction of the consequence, you know, you make your peace. So, you know, back when I was confronting the bank thing, one of the things that I considered as well, if what if I do fail entirely at this thing, what's going to happen? Well, I started to create a possible way of dealing with the very worst case outcome. And and in that process, you can get to this place of shrug of acceptance of so what. And there's a lightness that emerges right after you fully accepted and embraced your present situation. And that gives you a space to ask newly with real with like a blank slate, um, a clean canvas. Now what? And in that place, you can say, if I was victorious at managing the present circumstances, what would that look like? Where would I go? What would be needed there? And in that place, we can discover something that actually inspires us. But until you've sort of set aside the swirl of all the present circumstances, the breakdown that you're facing, you can't get to that. Well, you're bringing up a great point, too, because entrepreneurs, business owners are encountering maybe not to the same extent you you did um but but it's hard and and we have these things that happen in our businesses things that happen in our personal lives that can be completely daunting that we want to run away from or hide from and uh you know and it, and sometimes it feels like it's repetitive and constant and you know having a framework and a coach a friend a forum something to go you know, uh, people to go to with that, that seems like uh, something that can help you either rekindle the fire or, as you said, decide that's not the fire anymore. What's the next one? What do we what do we do now? So it happens in a thousand little ways, right? From small erosions that mm-hmm. we fail to notice or or we ignore in some fashion or major setback in some ways the major setback is unavoidable and forces your hand so i think of just in dealing with clients and in maybe the last 12 months an equity partner and senior person in a business having a psychological event a major breakdown meltdown and and doing the best to screw up the company in the process so that one's kind of unavoidable a cfo who dies unexpectedly, right? Um, uh, Where it's revealed uh, a salesperson made up a major Hail Mary customer, a a company saving sale that was going to do something extraordinary, and it was all made up. These are big events that I can see that have happened in clients in, in just the last year alone in the small number of companies that I work deeply with. But then there's all the others, like, oh, numbers are a little off oh, results in this area are down, or oh, we're a little bit behind on this project. And and then we, we look past those things, but along the way, a little resignation slips in, right? There's a little shutting down, or and that's that the shame and the fear, that's where the hiding starts to emerge. We start to pretend to be the leader uh, rather than being that full lit up leader. So there's a whole range of things from that where we don't necessarily address it. And we may not even fully see it on our own because we're so head down and, oh, that's just the way things are in this industry. That's the way it is right now. Everybody's in the same boat, right? But that acceptance, that erosion then feeds into the next and the next and the next. Yeah. 
it begins to build and cascade and and go over time which is why i think this this like what do you bring back to what's the so the manifesto contains the why what and how of the business the why is the purpose the reason for being right um, that appeals to us at a deep emotional level. It drives action and decision making. The how are the values, the way that we operate, real values that describe how the company operates, who it promotes, what decisions it makes, and that kind of thing are driven by the kind of values that we do, which are not aspirational in nature, but descriptive. They describe the company at its best. And then the what contains things like the brand promises and the BHAG. So the BHAG gives us a kind of a 10-year goal that's highly aligned to that purpose. So my purpose, right, is helping leaders build a better world. And my BHAG is to impact a million business leaders in, in the next 10 years. And that's a transformative BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal from Jim Collins' work in that I, I tend to work with 10 companies at a time. So I work with 10 companies at a time in depth, maybe 12 at some point, maybe nine at others, but about that many. And then each of them maybe averages 10 leaders. So that's 100 at a time. There's no way that I get to a million in 10 years unless I expand the way that I work, unless I find some ways to reach people that. through the media and things like that, right? So that... Right. That changes, and that, that BHAG inspires me to keep growing and reaching and evolving. The brand promise is what can those people expect from me, right? So uh -huh. that takes some time to think of. So thinking about the people who are most passionate about your work, what do they value? What are they expecting? What's the leading thing? And what are a couple supporting pieces, right? And that's in the brand promises. So I, I have three brand promises people can expect from me the best tools, so things like scaling up, framework, the Rockefeller habits, Strengths Finder, the Clifton Strengths Finder from the Gallup organization. I bring the best tool sets to people. I bring them world-class facilitation, uh, and they can count on me to make the process easy and fun. So I'm informal and jokey and playful and all of that, right? That doesn't always work for everyone. There are people that don't like that. But if I can go back to that on a regular basis, when I'm dealing with a breakdown in a customer who isn't playing along or something, I can look back to these things and I can go, oh, you know what? They don't fit. Oh, they don't have the same purpose or values or they're not aligned with my number three brand promise or, you know, there are a variety of ways that I find that they don't fit. Now, there are other things that can go in there, not necessarily in the manifesto, but like you can create a core customer profile. That's a pretty valuable thing to do as well. Figuring out what your trade area is or your sandbox, that's helpful and valuable. These are all kinds of things. But this core idea of having a, a clear vision for the future that we can articulate. Now, I make it richer with things like a painted picture, a vivid vision, and a three-hag, a three-year a highly achievable goal. I use all of these tools in complement to this as well to start to create a detailed plan to get me to the fulfilling on my vision. I love the three hag. I haven't heard it said that way before, but that's uh, the three hag. We have a podcast episode on three hag. Yeah, the three year yeah, highly yeah, achievable goal. I love it. Yeah, we set three year targets, but but framing it that way as related to the BHAG is uh, 
It's a nice time frame. Some people, you know, I had somebody asking yesterday, should we do four years, five years? I like to use three. It's near enough that we can create a detailed plan. Five years starts to get a little too long. And you can create a nice 36-month plan to track on your three HAG. Um, uh-huh. and, and you can update it every year and sort of create a rolling three HAG. I know we're getting a little bit uh, close on time here. I wanted to just ask you, you've been engaged in leadership with uh, EO Entrepreneurs Organization, both at EO San Francisco and regional and beyond for quite some time. Would you share a couple of your favorite lessons from those experiences? Well, I first joined the organization right about 2000. It was known in those days as YEO, the Young Entrepreneurs Organization. And I joined it. You know, we had small kids. We had several businesses. I needed an adult outlet to continue my development, to to, uh, bond and connect with and share pain with people dealing with the same kinds of things. You know, as an entrepreneur, your complaints sound like humble bragging to other people. So the things that you're really challenged by, you've got to, you know, oh, I'm having trouble with people or whatever. And that just sounds ridiculous to folks who aren't running a business, aren't not in a leadership. So it's useful to have uh, a group of peers to join and so on. And I, and pretty quickly on, I, I, I took on a role as forum chair. So that's the chairperson for the chapter responsible for the, the small peer groups that, that are organized. And and almost right aw- after the first year, I had a clash with the next board in terms of the vision and direction. And I uh, I quit. I also was turning 40. The organization had a rule at that point, you aged out at 40. But not only was I aging out, but I also was really upset about something. And I, I had to learn to uh, bend a little bit, right? To bend rather than break with events, to not let uh, myself get so emotion, have such a strong emotional reaction, to allow the emotions to be, to get upset about something, but not to let it snap me or drive me out, run away. So I grew up a lot in the process of that. I, I've since gone on and I spent a couple of years launching and running an accelerator program. I became a director of the, the accelerators in the Eastern region and then a communication uh, chair and communication uh, director for Western states. I've gone on to do a variety of things like that. And I think more and more I've learned to lead with influence, to be a kind of a servant leader where you don't have the hiring, firing uh, boss kind of authority. So you're influencing and persuading, you're creating opportunities for other people. And that's a lot easier and more compelling than the the, uh, strong authority we have by being the the check writing, hire, fire person, right? The boss. That's great. Thank you for that. Just got two more questions to before we kind of wrap up here. You've you've had some remarkable travels, you know, and, and many of them in the service of helping other entrepreneurs. And I know you've been to Saudi and Israel and Europe and Asia. And you know, I'm always jealous when you're sitting in Hawaii working. I want to want to be there too. But can you? I mean, what's one of your favorite stories about? other cultures and the entrepreneurs there that might surprise 
people listening to this. Tegan, you want to know what what have I learned? Well, I mean, in- you have exposure. You have exposure to a lot of different entrepreneurs, business owners, in multiple cultures around the world, and I'm just wondering what you've learned from that. Are there are there huge differences? Is there more commonality than we than we know and think of? Is there anything that stands out for you about those experiences that that might be surprising or useful? Professor? Oh, for sure. So, first of all, the reason that I have more of that is is the gift of my parents who followed their passion and their muse, and you know, took us as kids and lived all over the world and and had us uh, embrace the culture. So, we lived in Spain. We went to a school in Spanish. When we lived in Israel, we went to school in Hebrew schools. When we lived in Switzerland, we went to local schools. And along the way, I I learned four languages growing up, and I learned to embrace new cultures, new communities, and and just connect with them. So I think it, one, I learned that I could do it, right? And so that's what made it available. And then when other, you know, a lot of people are like, would you go to Pakistan? Sure, I'll go to Pakistan. Um, Will I be safe? Will I be taken care of? Will I be like that? And as long as there are places that I wouldn't totally feel safe, like I'd love to go to Afghanistan, I'd love to go to Yemen as a tourist. But I don't think uh, I'm fascinated with the culture and the art and the the geography and the stuff of Yemen, but it's just not safe right now. So I'll go an awful lot of places, way more than most people. And I think the thing that I notice from all of that is that at a deep sort of core level, what we share is greater than what's the, the the things we share are greater than what separates us. So, you know, the yearning to to be extraordinary, to leave a, a legacy, to you know, to have an impact. I think those kinds of things that reaching for that human spirit desire to to do something extraordinary, to be amazing. Uh, to be a contribution to the planet, to people, um, that's pretty universal. It shows up in different ways, and uh, we wear different things, we eat different things, we speak differently, we notice different things, we have different perspective, and so on. And and that is maybe doesn't get enough attention. Uh, I mean, we we. We notice it, but we don't notice then the connection to the underlying thing as well. So there are times that I've failed um, where I didn't notice enough the differences. As you can tell already, I'm willing to share my stories and things like that with people. Some places and sometimes it's not really welcome. And people don't really want to open up in front of other people in the same way. I can remember having sort of lackluster results at a at a workshop in the UK in England because I was a little too vulnerable too quickly and then started to go in with other people in a too direct fashion. I think the same token I noticed in Saudi Arabia where I tried to have too vulnerable too public of a conversation and people just weren't willing to interact that quickly in front of others in in my particular expression. In another case, though, I was highly successful in Thailand in a series of workshops because I used translation partners who not only translated my words where people often spoke quite a bit of English, 
but they brought the the nuance and the cultural reference to not just the words but the ideas and then we're able to give me feedback back and forth so some places are easier fit than others some places are harder i try to remember that at the end of the day we all have family issues we all struggle with relating to other human beings we all have communication strengths and weaknesses and we're all yearning to be more than uh, a sniveling whining human being we're all yearning to be something more extraordinary right yeah no that's great i appreciate that so last thing before we wrap up here you know, for business owners out there who are feeling alone or even isolated, I, you know, I, I certainly see a lot of people thinking that they're in this struggle by themselves. Um, meanwhile, you see it happening on, on, you know, dozens or hundreds of different kind of islands. But if they're feeling alone or isolated, what kind of a, what advice would you offer? Well, I, I am, uh, it may surprise people to hear this in this context, but I'm pretty introverted. And so while I'm willing to share my story and talk and interact and get on stage and all that kind of thing, I I sort of withdraw to a small number of people, relationships, I recover and all of that. And I, I've had to develop in myself some larger social connection to do the kinds of things that I wanted to do in life and found the places and the ways that I felt comfortable to connect. So I think... I think the book learning, so the sort of one way, like listen to a podcast, watch a show, read a book kind of thing is critical, but limited. So we want to use these kinds of tools to learn something, to expand it. But then you've got to add to it with something like peer group or go engage in a conference or workshops or things like that. Bring a human aspect to that learning to engage and and not to be alone. There, there are always people who've dealt with the problems that you're dealing with now, and it certainly makes the journey a lot easier and, and the challenge a lot easier if you will find people who have been down your path. And there is nothing that you, speaking to you and to each and every person listening, are dealing with now that hasn't been dealt with by others before, even successfully, right? Right. Right. I think that's that's a very important thing to remember and to understand, and then and then making that connection with people who've been there. That's that's certainly one of the values I've gotten out of EO, and and you know I was one of the facilitators of the Accelerator when you started that in San Francisco, and really enjoyed working with those uh, those businesses and business owners as well and facilitating those connections. So I really appreciate the entrepreneurs organization, YPO, young presidents, Vistage, whatever the Mm -hmm. group find for yourself, something that is appropriate and is a place where you can connect and maybe experiment with a few. Sure. No, that's great. Great advice. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, thanks very, very much Bill, for talking with me today. Just truly appreciate your sharing, your insights, your, I, you're always willing to share, and I appreciate that. But I think we uh, went places people will uh, it, it'll it'll be a huge benefit, and, and really appreciate your vulnerability and, and willingness to to put yourself out there in the way that you do. And uh, sure, well, I'm that. always open to, and people are welcome to find more stuff from me or listen to 
um, I podcast her, read our blog, and yeah. that kind of thing as well. So, I mean, we'll put this up in all the links and stuff too. But you want to let people know how to how to get a hold of you or where to find you. Well, just go find us at scalingupbusiness.com. Scalingupbusiness.com has our latest podcast episode. You can find it by the same name wherever you get podcasts. Um, You can read the blog and so on. And so tools and articles and tons of stuff like this there. Great. Well, thank you very, very much, Bill. Really appreciate it. And uh, I just can't say thanks enough. This was awesome. Thank you. You have been listening to Bill Gallagher and Sturdy McKee from SturdyMcKee.com. You can reach Bill at ScalingUpBusiness.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.